Yes, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We'll be continuing our series we started last week, going through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Again, we don't have any slides this morning because of the construction project. So the, uh, the version I'll be using is the English Standard Version. It's printed for you in your bulletin on page 10. And there's also the children's version on page 11. I'll be referring to both of those uh, throughout the sermon. If you have your own Bible, you'd like to turn there with us, it's fine. If you open your Bible to about halfway for most Bibles, that's usually the book of Psalms. And if you'll head to the right or east, you get to Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes is right after that. If you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 18. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together again in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your Word this morning, hungry to receive from you. Lord, we pray that you would give us truth this morning for our growth and for our transformation. We pray, Lord, that as we come to one of your books that is very candid about the situation of what it means to live in a fallen world, We pray that you would open up our hearts, that we would not deceive ourselves or be deceived, but that we would have honest eyes, honest thoughts, see the despair around us, and see that you have given us Christ, that we may cling to him for life. We pray you would show us all these things and more this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So the big context of Ecclesiastes, this book we started last week, Ecclesiastes asks the big questions that the rest of Scripture answers. This book is very candid. This is the book in the Old Testament. It's called Wisdom Literature, and it admits from the very beginning that sometimes life just doesn't make sense. That life is frustrating. Life is unmanageable. And often we ask, how is God in control of this? This book is rooted, the whole book is rooted in the question of chapter 1, verse 3, that basically asks, what does a person gain by striving, by all the toil in this life? What's the point of it all? Ecclesiastes is an honest look at all the ways that we try to save ourselves under the sun is the phrase that it uses. It's a synonym for the New Testament phrase, the world. It's a life in a cursed, fallen world that is often frustrating, that just doesn't work most of the time. The word that they use, the famous word from the King James Version that people have kept over the years is vanity. We talked about last week how the English word for vanity has changed over the last 300 years, so it's no longer the appropriate way to translate this faithfully. So the word that many commentators have fallen on, and I'm by no means a scholar. Yes, I am wearing elbow patches, but I'm not a scholar. So, But what most people have fallen on as a good translation is frustrating. The root word for vanity is the Hebrew word for the idea of vapor, the idea of smoke, the idea of breath, the idea of being insubstantial. You can't hold on to it. As soon as we try to grasp onto life, as soon as we think we can say, I understand, I can manage, I got this, life changes, doesn't it? And we're back to frustration, to trying to grab onto something substantial in the vapor. And we in the church are not immune to that, although we often think we're supposed to act like it. So Ecclesiastes answers the frustration of life under the sun. And so with that, Please remain seated. I'd like to read today's text, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Again, it's printed for you on page 10 in your bulletin. 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And this is God's word. So the whole book is looking to answer this question from chapter 1, verse 3. What's the point of all the toil? So now after his kind of introduction, the author is starting to introduce himself to us. He introduces himself as Solomon or Solomon-esque. It was very common in ancient literature to grab onto a famous person and kind of write something from their perspective. Our ideas of plagiarism or identity theft, whatever you want to call that, just really wouldn't apply. So this author, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. We know it's inspired, so it could be Solomon. It could be Solomon-esque. He never actually identifies himself by that word Solomon. He just calls himself the preacher, the philosopher, the pastor is the word we could use. So we'll just stick with that, what the text says about itself. So our theme for today is this. Seeking the answer to a puzzling life is painful when you're missing pieces. You ever got that box out, dumped it out, and you start working, and all of a sudden you notice there's some pieces missing? That's frustrating. That's the word here for Ecclesiastes. That's what we're trying to do with our lives, trying to piece it together, and Ecclesiastes comes and says, you're missing some of the pieces. So we try to get answers. We try to find these pieces. So we're told to get an education or we're told to get a life. But the Bible offers us the answer of getting remade. So we'll jump right into this. Uh, the first couple of verses, 13 through 15, the answer he first explores is to get an education. Right there in verse 13, he says, I applied my heart. It's a phrase that means he gave his life. He was all in to do this. And what was he going to do? He's going to seek and search out. He's inquiring. He's exploring. This is diligently with no half measures. He's going to find out. What's it say in verse 13? He's going to find out all that has been done under heaven. He really wants to know. He wants to become wise in everything to get the answer to 1-3. What's it all about? He's going to learn all he can about life under the sun. In other words, he's tried our culture's big answer, education. Right? The assumption is that humanity's main problem is ignorance. People just don't know enough to live well. And if we can only get people more knowledge, spend more money on education, we can solve the problems of life. I mean, regardless of where you stand on politics, have you noticed that major issues come up before school boards? Major issues. Why, why is that the battleground so often? Well, because if you can educate people early on your issue, your position becomes standard. It becomes normal. Their position becomes abnormal, which tells us that education is more than learning two plus two equals four, isn't it? Education is learning how to look at life, how to function, how to live, who you are. See, Ecclesiastes comes and Ecclesiastes tells us information in our brain cannot satisfy our heart. 
that at the end of his quest to find the answer in education, his own self-diagnosis at the second half of verse 13 is what? It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He looks around and an alternate translation I found says this, as a tragic affliction that God has afflicted on the sons of Adam. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls, so you might make sure you guys can catch this with us. The last part of verse 13, it says, what kind, what's, what's his diagnosis of life? God has given us a hard life to drag around. See, as an educated man, he, he sees the frustration of life even more now, not less. He's learned it all. He's seen it all. He traces the frustration, notice, to the will of God. He says, God has done this to us. God has given this to us. See, remember that phrase, under the sun. That's east of Eden. This is a world where paradise has been lost, and God has not stopped the unhappy that that loss brings. In other words, every day is a bad day. That's the norm, he says. The good days are the exception. But, but, but Pastor Sean, Christians are supposed to be happy, 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 all the time, 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 right? Abundant life and, and all that stuff. Well, show me from Scripture where God's Word says we have to be happy all the time. Because here in this Scripture, it's not just an unhappy business. It's actually the Hebrew word for evil, for bad. See, this is a cursed world where evil is rampant, and we have to drag that curse around our whole life. And whose fault is that? What does he say? Whose fault is that? He says, God has given. It's God's fault. This is the first mention of God in the book. And he says it. God has done this to us. He introduces God not in his nobility, but in mystery. This is, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, this is we meet Strider before we meet Aragorn. We meet Strider, who the text says what? He feels fair, but he seems foul. We meet him before we see the glorious high king of Gondor. Okay, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, okay, let's try something better. We meet Mr. Darcy as the brooding kind of jerk at the very beginning of the book, right? And then towards the end, he's this self-sacrificial lover. This is how God is introduced in Ecclesiastes. He's kind of like, who are you? Can I trust you? Because you've given us an unhappy, evil business. See, part of the curse is that we will not be happy in this world. Apart from being back in a relationship with our Creator, we will not be happy. And so the answers in this cursed world, the answers offered here are not supposed to satisfy us. And so the result of his quest, he tells us in the second part of verse 14 is what? He's tried this, and what does he come to? It's vanity. It's striving after wind. What we said for the boys and girls in their version, we said it's like trying to catch the wind in your hand. Like you said to your mom saying, honey, please go to the neighbor and see if I can borrow a cup of sugar. Hey, would you please go outside and get me a quart of wind? Good luck with that. See, trying to find answers in this frustrating world through education is like herding cats, is what he says. The philosopher preacher of Ecclesiastes here, he's so frustrated at the end of verse 14 by his search, he starts talking in poetry. He says in verse 15, you can't straighten out what is crooked. You can't count things that aren't there. 
Or I put it for the kids in verse 15, life here is like a puzzle, is a messed up puzzle with missing pieces. See, if you're frustrated, if life is stressful, if things aren't working out for you, hear the book of Ecclesiastes here. Life has not gone sideways on you all of a sudden. It was already messed up. The frustration comes from your attempts to find answers under the sun that don't work. And our culture's big answer, more education, doesn't work. The question of what's the point of everything can't be answered by getting another degree. But education isn't the only place that we kind of tend to look, is it? The next answer offered in the text is to get a life, verses 16 through 18. So starting in verse 16, he moves past acquiring knowledge to what he's actually experiencing in life. He gives a summary statement here in verses 16, 17, and 18, and then in chapter 2, he's going to expand and specifically go through all the different answers he dove in and lived out trying to find out if anything under the sun can help. Earlier, he said he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. Now he's changed it up a bit. Notice with me, look at verse 17 there in your Bibles. What's he say? He says, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. See, instead of searching, now he's knowing. It's a Hebrew phrase. We call it a Hebraism for intimate knowledge, for intimate understanding. In other words, if if you're familiar with some of the genealogies in Scripture, Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son. So-and-so knew his wife, and she bore a son. That's what knowledge in the Hebrew mind means. This is intimate knowledge, personal, experiential knowledge. He's going to live out what life without God looks like. He's going to really participate in the answers offered. He says he's going to dive in and he's going to taste and see wisdom. He's going to taste and see madness and folly. Now, these are terms to an ancient Near Eastern culture. He's not saying he's going to go drive down to Arkham Asylum and interview people. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. In his culture, wisdom and knowledge in general were the ideas for doing what is right. In Israel, in God's people specifically, it meant following God's instructions. Madness and folly were seen as doing the wrong thing. In Israel, it meant living life without God on purpose. That's what a fool would do. They said, here's what God's law, I get it, I understand it, I reject it. I'm going to do this way. That's a fool, that's folly. So he wants to live out these things. He wants to see what is life really like without God. He wants to, we could say, really understand the life of a non-Christian. Now there's good and there's bad here. Good. We can get from this. Many longtime Christians, we have been with Christ for so long that we've forgotten what it was like to be a non-Christian. We really have. It makes loving our non-Christian neighbors really hard. Or perhaps so much of our social life is having rich, lovely fellowship with other Christians that we have very little time left to have a relationship with non-Christians. And when you get right down to it, we don't really know any non-Christians. This can be a good corrective to us. But here's bad. Let's, let's, let's also, you know, there's, some, there's, a, there's a fly in the ointment. Not everything in the Bible is put there as our example to follow. Identifying and living in all these other answers is not the roadmap 
to being fulfilled and avoiding the frustrations in your life. He is going to dive into these by casting off his identity as one of God's people. And he's going to live, we would say, authentically under the sun in all these different answers to see if he'll be happy and fulfilled doing this. It sounds simple. It sounds very poetic almost. But this quest here, starting in verse 16, represents a deep crisis of faith. He is a believer who knows his stuff and from the outside seems to be very serious about their faith, but inside they're unfulfilled and they're unhappy. And to them, Christianity seems very weak. It seems very unsatisfying. Can I just say as a pastor, I understand that. That evangelical church in general has not always been good at presenting the robust biblical Jesus. You know what I mean. The the Jesus as a genie who gives you a good life if you rub his lamp of believing in him, you know that Jesus? that's, That's not the biblical robust Jesus. And it sets you up for failure when you believe in that genie Jesus, especially our teenagers because it creates a community inside the church that's afraid to acknowledge, much less wrestle with despair, hard things in life. When someone is in Christ, but yet they feel disappointment in life, they feel a lack of meaning, they feel a lack of purpose, they feel like a despair in their gut. Very often, if it's a church that is all about the genie Jesus who's answered your three wishes, why aren't you happy? It's very hard to really wrestle with these questions as the author of Ecclesiastes does. If our, if our teens or others in the church don't, don't feel safe to have questions and struggles, they'll do what Ecclesiastes guy does. They'll look for those answers somewhere else under the sun. Here's another way that we can do this in church world. We can push people towards seeing the wrong answers under the sun. So um, when I was in college, I was, I was a youth minister. I was actually a youth pastor uh, about five miles from the Branch Davidian compound, and we had former Branch Davidians in our congregation. Different story for a different time. Um, but in, and throughout grad school, seminary, I was also a youth pastor. And so when I got back into full-time ministry after being in the corporate world for a while, I thought, well, maybe I should probably try to be a youth pastor, you know, because you have this wrong understanding that it's like, you know, you work your way up. No, if you're called to that position, that's, your, that's where you're gifted. And I was not, just let's be clear. So thank God for Marty and Evan and Allie. So when I was applying for these jobs, I got, I got interviews all over the place. I remember I was talking to this church in Alabama and I kind of outlined my philosophy of ministry, you know, gospel-centered, Christ-based, parent, really empowering parents, really getting into the Word, focusing that coming to church on Sunday morning empowers your teens for the rest of the week, you know, all that good stuff. And I remember one of the interviewers stopped the interview and basically said something to the line of, yeah, 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 we've, all, we've heard all that before. How are you going to stop our teens from drinking and having sex? Because that's what mattered. Now, I've got five kids. That's very important to me, too. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But moral behavior is the result of a vibrant relationship with the beautiful person of Jesus. And when we in the church make it seem as if the behavior is more important than knowing the Savior who empowers that behavior, we actually drive people away from the gospel and towards the answers under the sun. That's one of the reasons, you know, we've had a, a time with the elders of refreshing our vision and values. And so our, our values under our, our existing vision are we want to live, grow, thrive, and go. 
And so we grow together in our understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is. And in that growing, then we thrive, meaning we look like we're Christians. We act like we're Christians, to say it superficially. We have this behavior that we all expect because we've been growing in Christ and that leads us to thriving in life, to finding these answers. But that's not where Ecclesiastes is. At this point, he's summarizing again what he's going to really expand in chapter two. Chapter two is gonna be like almost for mature audiences only. But for now, he tells us in verse 17 that finding the answer through pursuit was like trying to catch the wind in his hands. So he sums it up in verse 18. Look at verse 18 there in your text. He says, in much wisdom is much vexation. Isn't that a great word, vexation? Anger, grief, indignation. He says, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, anguish, pain. Here's how I put it for the kids there, verse 18. The more I live, the angrier I get. The more I learn, the more pain I see. And so he comes to understand what many after him have, that the more you experience in life, the more you experience and taste the answers offered under the sun, the more you see grief and pain and despair out there. Well, there aren't many boys and girls here this morning, but there are some. So boys and girls who are here, this has been kind of adult this morning. But I want to ask you, have you ever heard mom and dad talking about some things? You overhear and you really want to know more about it, so you ask them, but they won't tell you? That's frustrating, isn't it? Like, well, you're not old enough, or it's complicated. Oh, my kids hate the, the C word. Don't say it's complicated. You know why we won't tell you the, those things? Because there are some things that once you know them, you see life differently and you'll become sad and you'll really wish that you didn't know that thing. Mom and dad, I just tell you the truth, boys and girls, mom and dad would love to go back to being children and to unknow a lot of things they know now. They would have less worry, less stress, and less fear. Mom and dad are trying to protect you from those things as long as they can. Because life is crooked and messed up. It's a puzzle with missing pieces. And he gets us to this point, all of us, where we're supposed to kind of feel that disappointment. We're kind of, he, want, he wants us to wallow in the unhappiness for a bit. Because, see, Ecclesiastes is for those who can't quite resonate with the book of Job. Because deep down, while we may have experienced pain and heartache and disappointment, We really can't describe our life as extreme suffering like that. See, Ecclesiastes is the journey of intellectual suffering rather than the experiential suffering of Job. And many of us have tasted the suffering of Ecclesiastes. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. There's always more to learn. The more you understand, the more you see the grief, pain, and despair of life under the sun. It really is crooked, and you can't make it straight. See, and when we in the church, when we are willing to be honest about the toilsome nature of life like this, it's a great opportunity for talking to people about the beauty of Jesus and the grace offered. Evangelism today should be rooted in the despair of verse 18. I know that sounds crazy, but it really does. Because instead of, and I was trained in this and have done a lot of this, instead of the, you know, let me, let me ask you some perfunctory questions and then you be quiet and listen to my memorized presentation. Instead of that, Ecclesiastes kind of shows us, why don't you let the other person talk? Why don't you ask them their answers for life's frustrations? 
How do they answer the question, what's the point of all of this? And people who are ready for the gospel, they've been thinking about those things. Again, going back to our values of live, grow, thrive, go. After we've grown in our appreciation for Christ, after, we've, after we have a thriving life together where we're actually experiencing the beauty of the gospel, we are then empowered to what? To go out and take that beauty to others because we've wrestled with the reality of the hard things that we've been saved from. So don't be afraid to let a friend explore with you life under the sun. Because when they realize it's striving after when, they might be ready to hear the gospel's substantial answer. Which leads us to the Bible's answer. What is the answer? What's the, what's the big question about what life is all about? Well, the answer instead of get education or get a life is to get remade. By the redemption through Jesus Christ, we can get remade. And that's in this text. That's not just a preacher trying to force it into this text. Remember at the end of his answer to education, where he learned that he learned everything and he saw there's no ultimate answers. In frustration, he says the poetry of verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Well, the New Testament claims specifically that Jesus actually is the fix for verse 15. As preparation for Jesus coming, if you're familiar with the story, God anointed a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had this preaching ministry of repentance. He was going out preparing the way for Jesus to come. And in Luke 3, 5, one of the things John the Baptist says, he quotes from Isaiah to, to, to prepare for Jesus, but then he grabs Ecclesiastes 1.15 and he shoves it into the Isaiah quote to make this connection. John the Baptist says, "'Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low,' And then he says, and the crooked shall become straight. Grabbing this from Ecclesiastes, the one who's coming is going to fix this. Jesus came to straighten out the crooked world. The author of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, the wisest man there was, yet couldn't find the answers for the frustrations and meaningless of, of life. But Jesus, the greater Solomon, left the glories of heaven to become one of us. Jesus claimed to be the wisdom of God incarnate because Jesus himself is the answer and Jesus gives the answer. Or another place in the New Testament we see this, if everybody would turn to page 10 of their bulletin, please, because we didn't have slides, I inserted this passage from 1 Corinthians there at the bottom. So the Apostle Paul, himself an expert in the Old Testament, uses this passage from Ecclesiastes to speak to Roman culture. Look with me there at the bottom of page 10. Here's what he says to a church in Corinth. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, so there's a lot there. Here's real quick. Jews wanted signs. As a culture, they were interested in empirical evidence and gaining knowledge. This is get an education we saw verses 12 through 15. Gentiles, that's non-Christian, or non, excuse me, non-Jewish Romans, they wanted wisdom in general as a culture. They wanted to experience life. They wanted to understand what's happening by jumping into life. 
This is getting a life we saw in verses 16 through 18. So both of these things were in that culture. So to speak to a church who had both those groups in it, the Apostle Paul actually grabs themes from Ecclesiastes. And he says, when you try to catch the wind, you get no answers. That although the message of Christianity seems foolish, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, you actually reach into the vapor and grab onto something substantial. So in your pain, in your struggling, in your heartaches, take that all to God. Scream out to him, I don't understand. Why is life so hard? Why is life so frustrating? And then look to Jesus on the cross and see him dying for you. See him raised on the third day, destroying death and breaking the power of frustration under the sun. Confess that that resurrected Lord, Jesus himself is the answer you seek and he will help you understand life. He'll give you roots, he'll ground you in his love and then you will not understand everything in this life. I'm not saying that. But you'll have resources to live in peace today because of the promise that you'll have answers one day, someday. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. Do you have that substantial answer? Or are you still grasping at the wind? Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would do your work of sending forth your truth into our very hearts. And Lord, that what, is of, what has been said that is of you, would you drive it deep? And what has been said that is not of you, would you give us amnesia like we never heard it? Lord, would you help us in the frustrations, in the despair of life, to reach out and grab onto Jesus as he's offered in the gospel? Lord, would you help us all to taste and see that he is good? And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.